Beloved saints, uh, grass withers, flowers fade and die, but God's word is eternal and true, and in it we know our God better. Uh, So please give your attention to the reading of it. And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure all diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere, Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening and was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging, and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. And he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. This ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet. It is our guide through the dark. It is the wisdom and truth that we follow each day. It is sweeter than honey and yet sharper than swords. It is healing and is justice and it is ours to obey. Your words are understanding of peace and grace and love. And that's the reason why we draw near to it, that we might know you. Speak to us then through it, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus and his disciples as they crossed that torrential sea and came to the land of the Gerasenes, and then he cast the demons into the swine who then drowned themselves in the sea. And we saw that there was an intentional parallel to Israel crossing the Red Sea and the drowning of Pharaoh and his army after Israel was safely on the other side. And the point of all this 
was to show us who Jesus is. He is the God of Israel, the one who who led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But Luke isn't done with that question. In fact, uh, we see it show up again in our passage this morning, this time on the lips of Herod, uh, the regional ruler who had imprisoned and executed John the Baptist. He too wants to know who Jesus is. But his interest is, is very different than that of his disciples. Herod sees Jesus as a threat, as a competing ruler with a competing kingdom, and he's right. Because Jesus is not simply a good teacher, he is not simply a religious leader, he is not simply a moral example to be followed. He is all of those things, but far more. He comes as king of heaven and earth, and he brings with him a kingdom. Jesus has come to conquer. But what kind of king is he? And what kind of power does he have? These are the questions, and they're not new questions. In fact, who can forget what happened in Israel's own history shortly after crossing the Red Sea? Having watched God uh, part the Red Sea, having brought Israel safely through, having drowned the Egyptian enemies, uh, they came up out into the wilderness uh, to the edge of the promised land and they sent spies in to find out what they were up against. Twelve men went in, from each uh, one from each of the tribes of Israel. Twelve men chosen and commissioned were sent out to scout out the land and see what was going on. And they came back with excitement about the land. It's a land uh, rich and, and, and plentiful. It's, it's flowing with milk and honey. And yet they saw impediments as well. The inhabitants of the land. They were strong. And they were powerful. Uh, the spies, the 12 men said they were giants. And the people were scared. And, and didn't believe they could accomplish conquering this land. They believed that going in would mean certain death. Now, Two of those spies were different and believed that they they could do it. One of them was named Caleb. He stood up and he said, If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and he will give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of this land, for they are bread to us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. His confidence uh, you can see, wasn't in their strength. He didn't say, we're, we're strong enough, we're more in number, we can do this. His confidence was in the God who does the miraculous. His confidence was in the God who is not dependent upon our strength and our abilities, but supplies all our needs. But the people would not listen. And so God said that generation would not be the ones to go in and conquer the land. Instead, they would spend 40 years wandering the wilderness. But during that time, God would teach his people something about how he cares for them. For 40 years, he fed them with manna 
a miraculous provision of bread come down from heaven. Uh, He would keep their clothes from wearing out and their shoes from wearing out. And and at the beginning of Deuteronomy 8, he tells them why. I did this for 40 years to teach you one important lesson, and it's this. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that you might learn that your life is not found in what you possess in this life, but that you possess me. That's the message our passage picks up on today. And it's important. Because most of us, if not all of us, know what it's like to feel like we can't do it. To feel like our tanks have run dry. That we're running on empty. And to think that there's no hope. There's no future. There's no tomorrow. And that's where we find the disciples today. In our passage, it is uh, an echo of history. Again, 12 men are sent out. And again, there is antagonism from the enemies. And again, there is doubt that God can take care of them. And again, God brings a miraculous provision of bread to teach them who he is. In this, our hope, my hope this morning is that we will learn that our hope is not in our abilities, but in the God whose power is made perfect in our weakness. Uh, that's what I hope uh, we will see from this uh, wonderful passage this morning. One day, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he told them that he would be sending them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. I think that language can sound strange to us. Uh, unfortunately, it's fallen out of use by God's people. Uh, we talk about evangelizing, we talk about proclaiming the gospel, but we don't really talk much about God's kingdom, let alone proclaiming it. Uh, perhaps it sounds too ancient, like we have to speak in King James if we're going to say it. Or, or maybe it offends our democratic ideals. We fought a war so that we don't have to have a king or something like that. But I guess God doesn't mind sounding ancient. And he doesn't seem to have a problem stepping on our American democratic ideal toes. He sent his disciples out to proclaim the kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, in order to have a kingdom, you need four things. And this is true of any kingdom. You need to have a king who rules. And you need to have a people that are ruled. You need to have a law which governs the relationship between the the king and the people. And you have to have a, a land, a realm, a place in which all of this takes place. Those four things. A king, a people, a law, and a land. God's kingdom is ultimately realized and experienced in heaven where he, the king, rules over the church, his people. And he, the law that regulates that relationship is the new covenant where God promises and swears that he will give eternal life to all who bend their knee to him and surrender their lives to him by coming to him through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who do this are no longer citizens of the present age, of the kingdom of darkness. They are now citizens of the age to come, uh, the kingdom of light, 
And while that is most fully experienced in heaven, it is that reality is already breaking into this life as people bow their knees to Jesus. They become, as we heard in our declaration of pardon just a few minutes ago, citizens of heaven, which means in this world, in this life, they are strangers and sojourners and exiles, pilgrims. This is what we are inviting people into when we share the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what evangelism really is. It's, it's an invitation to become citizens of a different kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom. And so evangelism is in a very real sense kingdom building. It's conquering. It's conquest. Now that might sound brutal, but remember what people are being called out of. It's a different kingdom. There's no such thing as no kingdom. What we're calling people out of is a kingdom whose ruler enslaves and kills his people. A liar who delights in their pain and suffering. A king who conquers such a tyrant is a liberator. And so Jesus sent his 12 disciples as kingdom ambassadors to begin this work of building his kingdom. And like the 12 spies going out so many years earlier, these are the first to kick off this work of conquest. He gave them authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And, and, and the, the healing was to show that they spoke with authority. The purpose of the signs and the wonders they did was to validate the message of the kingdom. But that message and that authority was all they were to take with them. They weren't to take extra clothes, food, or money. They weren't to plan ahead and, and, and where they were going to stay. He wanted them to go forward, forward trusting him and not their possessions or their planning. That's one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? We're good at following God when we know how everything's going to work out. But when we don't see how things are going to work out, that's hard. Just like Israel looking into the promised land, if we're not confident we can conquer those giants, we're not going to budge. But Jesus wanted them to trust him, not themselves, and so he sent them off with nothing. This doesn't mean that everything will be rosy. He warned them that some people that they would come in contact with would welcome them and others would reject them. And he told them not to worry. If someone refused them, they were to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. In other words, he's saying, rejection does not invalidate your message. It only increases the condemnation of those who reject it. I think 2,000 years later, this is still one of the hardest lessons for us to learn. When people reject us, when we share the good news of Jesus and they reject us, we tend to think that either the message failed or the messenger failed. Either Jesus' message of salvation isn't powerful enough, sweet enough to draw people to him, or we messed up, we did something wrong. 
We struggle with the idea that anyone would reject Jesus if they truly understood what he offers. It's too good. It's too wonderful. But here's the thing. It's a kingdom with a king. And coming means bowing your knee. And that is the hardest thing to do. Those who have done it know that there's nothing more liberating, nothing more wonderful. But until you've done it, it is intimidating and it is hard. There are those who see Jesus as only a threat to their own power, their own autonomy. They want to be king. They want to be ruler in their life. Not bow to one. And so they hate God's kingdom and they hate its king. And that's what we see in Herod in verses 7 through 9. He killed John the Baptist simply for challenging his authority. And as the disciples go out and they heal the sick and they cast out demons, he feels threatened again. And he knows that John is gone and he wants to know who is disrupting his little kingdom now. He's confused. He thought he took care of the threat. But it turns out he was wrong. And so he ramps up his antagonism. And the reality that we have to learn is that it's not always going to be smooth sailing. Yes, the message we preach is wonderful. But it threatens those in power. Every week we pray for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted because they live in lands where they are not free to worship because Christ is a threat. It would be foolish to think that that might not one day be our reality. He is a threat. And that means that the work of evangelism, proclaiming the kingdom of God, is going to be hard. It's going to be exhausting. It will meet with opposition. There will be resistance. And this is what the twelve learned when they first went out. They came back and they reported all that they had done. And Jesus took them and it says he withdrew to a quiet place. It makes sense. It's time to rest. It's time to recover. It's time to debrief. And yet that peace and quiet would not last long. Because the crowds learned where they were and they came, but Jesus didn't send them away. He did what he had sent the disciples out to do. He started proclaiming the kingdom and healing the sick. And the day wore on and the disciples were tired, exhausted really. And they came to Jesus and told him to send the crowds away. This is one of the rare times you will ever find the disciples telling Jesus what to do. They didn't ask. They didn't request. They told him. Send them away. Enough is enough. We've served. We've preached. We've healed. We're tired. And they didn't want to serve anymore. And it's understandable. Jesus himself seems to understand he's the one who took them and withdrew to a quiet place, a secluded spot. They're not being petty. 
I think we all know what this is like. When we first become Christians, we have so much energy and enthusiasm. We head out like the disciples, unable to contain our excitement. But we do get tired. We face opposition. Sometimes we serve and we're taken advantage of. And eventually, it's hard. We don't know if we can go on any longer. And we want to tell God, send them away. I'm done. I just, I just don't have anything left. But Jesus, oh Jesus, he doesn't say, you guys are exhausted, I've got this. He doesn't tell them, watch what I'm about to do, it will blow your minds. He tells them, give the people something to eat. There's more to be done. They're hungry. Keep going. And they look around. And they have five loaves of bread and two fish. And we're not talking Costco loaves here. These are oversized dinner rolls. It's not really enough to feed the twelve. And Jesus wants them to share. What would you do? When all you see is what you have or or what you don't have. When you can only count your possessions and your strength among your assets. When you face great need and you see only scarcity. when, When all you can see is the impossible. What do you do? If I give away what little I have, if I don't guard what I have, if I don't protect myself, who will? You can imagine what the disciples wanted to say to Jesus. We're in a desolate place. Well, actually, that's a bad translation. What it literally says is, we're in the wilderness. There's no food. What are you going to do? Make bread magically appear? Who's ever heard of such a thing? Now, Jesus, we know that you commanded the winds and the waves and they obeyed you like they did Moses. And and we know that you drowned your enemies in the sea like God did with Pharaoh and his army. And we know that you sent the twelve out to prepare for the coming conquest. But we're in the wilderness now. When has bread ever just appeared in the wilderness? Who does Jesus think he is? You see, history has a way of repeating itself. The twelve have gone out and they've come back. The kingdom is at hand. But doubts have crept in. Exhaustion has overpowered faith. And they need to learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They need to learn the lesson that Israel did so many years earlier, that provision is not based upon what we see, but whom we serve. And just as God fed the people for 40 years in the wilderness to drive this point home, the question is, will he do it again? So Jesus told his disciples, have everyone sit down. Now we don't want to gloss over this. This is what hosts do before they feed people. They have them sit down. And sitting is the place of honor. It's the servants who don't sit. They remain standing. 
This is, by the way, why the congregation sits during the Lord's Supper and the elders bring the food to you. You have the seat of honor and the leaders are the servants in this house. Jesus didn't tell the twelve to sit because they weren't done serving. And he takes the five loaves and the two fish and he gives thanks. And, and you, you have to love the irony. As far as everyone can see, there's not much to give thanks for. And yet Jesus is acting like there's this bountiful feast. Maybe they thought that the heat was finally getting to him, that exhaustion was taking its toll, that the master had finally pushed himself too far. And then he broke the loaves and handed them to the twelve and told them to start passing it out. And they started passing it out. And then they kept going and kept going. Fifty at a time. And then a hundred. Eventually thousands. At least 5,000. Actually, probably twice that many at least because they would have only numbered the men in their count. And yet the bread's not running out. It just keeps coming. As long as they passed it out, there was more until everyone ate and was satisfied. And then they start gathering what's left over. And they filled 12 baskets, one for each of the disciples. You can imagine them standing there, each with a basket full in his hands. Where they had once looked at a sparse meal that would have just taken the edge off but not satisfied the twelve. They're now each staring at more than they could possibly eat that night. And then they looked at Jesus, the one they had earlier commanded to send the people away. The one they had told there was no way of feeding these people the one who can feed 5,000 or more people and still have enough to provide for his 12 disciples. And the message couldn't have been clearer. I know you're exhausted. I know you're tired. I know you've served. But you have me. And I'll take care of you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Sometimes the Lord pushes us past our limits so that we can learn to trust his strength and not ours. It's a lesson we need to learn. It's so hard not to operate out of a scarcity mindset. I'm weak. I'm finite. There's only so much of me to go around. I only have so much to give. And we think that our strength and our energy and our resources set the limits on what we can do and what the Lord can do through us. We have a hard time distinguishing between how much of us we have and how much of Jesus we have. And again, it's like the manna in the wilderness. When they tried to hoard it, it spoiled. God gave them enough for each day and no more. None lacked anything, nor could any stockpile. And the point was clear. 
God always provides them enough for what he calls them to do. When they trusted God, there was always enough for what they needed. It's amazing what our God can do with broken bread. Did you notice how our passage emphasizes the breaking of the bread? Verse 16, he broke the loaves. Verse 17, they collected broken pieces of bread. Twelve baskets full. This was not the last time that Jesus would break bread. He would do it again on his last night with his disciples. And he would tell them that that broken bread was a picture of his body about to be given for them in death. He would serve them past the point of exhaustion. He would serve them unto death so that he might feed their souls with eternal life. He would not quit serving them no matter the cost. In those broken loaves that day in the wilderness, Jesus was telling his disciples who he is. He was answering Herod's question. He is the God of Israel who fed them in the wilderness and led his people into the conquest of the land. And he is the one who is willing to give his own life to make them citizens of his eternal kingdom. And that means that Jesus' conquest, the building of his kingdom, is not done through brute force, but through sacrifice and love and service. Jesus did more through dying on the cross than he could have ever done by wielding a sword. And we see that in the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus served the people. He let them sit. He and his disciples took the posture of servants. Yes, he is the king of heaven. He is the king of earth. But he is gentle and he is merciful and he is kind. He didn't conquer them by bludgeoning them, but by serving them. Remember this, beloved, when you feel inadequate as his ambassadors. When you represent, when you, when you wonder if you are adequate to represent him to a hostile world. When you question your skills and apologetics. When you feel inadequate to articulate the finer points of theology. Remember this. More souls have been won for Christ around the dinner table than in public debates. When you open your heart, when you open your life, when you open your home, you are representing who Jesus is. And you can trust the rest to Jesus. It's the model he set for us. And it continues to this day. Each Sunday, the Lord invites us to his table to remember what his kingdom looks like. It looks like the cross. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like service. And what we receive this morning might be small to our eyes, but those who know Jesus, they always walk away satisfied. Father, you know how weak we become, how we are when our tanks run dry. You know how we tend to judge everything by what we see. We judge what is possible by our strength. We fail to trust you, to depend on you. 
to remember that you are the one who fed the people with manna in the wilderness, who fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Forgive us our short-sightedness and teach us to see with the eyes of faith, to remember that your strength is perfected in our weakness, and to remember that you sustain us even when we think all is lost. We praise you and we thank you. Amen.